An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to have our guest, Alex Edmonds. To say Alex is a professor of finance at the London Business School is a little like saying LeBron James is a basketball player. It's true, but it doesn't convey the scope of mastery. As just one example, Alex has won 23 teaching awards and was the Poets and Quines Professor of the Year in 2021. Alex is one of the really good thinkers who spans both academia and practice. Yes, he's the managing editor of the Review of Finance, Europe's leading academic financial journal, but he's also written for practitioner publications such as the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, and Harvard Business Review. His book, Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit, is a personal favorite. But I'm not the only fan. It was a Financial Times Best Business Book of 2020. Alex is hugely influential in a variety of fora, from the City of London and Wall Street to the halls of Westminster, and regulatory offices everywhere. He's investigated the economics of share buybacks for the UK government and has consulted to the board of directors of the World Bank. Welcome, Alex. It's great to be on, John. Thanks very much for the invitation. What's your origin story? We find that interesting people often have had interesting lives. How'd you become the person you are? So I was really lucky to go to a Montessori school when I was young. So the Montessori school system is about experiential learning. So when you would read the Canterbury tale, they would take you to Canterbury. When you'd learn about Haven's Walk, they take you on a walk there. And so what I thought this was really interesting is that it encouraged you to go beyond the syllabus. So you weren't just learning things because they would be in an exam. You were learning things because they were of interest. And they encouraged people to be broad in what they were learning. You couldn't get an academic scholarship at the school. You could only get a scholarship in sports or music or drama or arts, and I was a music scholar at the school. And this carried on, I think, through my later education. So in England, you have to specialize pretty early. You have to do three or four subjects only by the age of 17 and 18. Many people specialize in either arts or sciences. So some of my friends did maths, physics, chemistry. Others might do English, history, and French. I did English, German, for arts, maths, and economics. So maths and the social science. And that led me to studying economics. And what I really find interesting about it is, yes, there are some theories, so it's not completely subjective, but the theories are not set in stone. It's not like physics. So John, you and I could um, see the same theories and have different opinions. Maybe I think taxes should be lower. Maybe you think taxes should be higher. We can respect each other's opinion. We can learn from each other's opinion. And so I like the fact that you have theories. And so there is something we can learn from, but also differences of interpretation. So that's led to me going into financial economics right now. One of the issues you and I have spoke about in the past is how some research, both academic and practitioners, can be, let's call it sloppy. 
That is, the conclusions aren't necessarily justified by the actual research. Um, let's particularly focus on practitioner research, which is not necessarily presented in peer-reviewed academic journals, which provide some level of review. But practitioner research can still be relevant and can be very good or sloppy and self-serving. What are the common issues you see and how can our listeners distinguish between good research and that which isn't? Thanks very much, John. I think the main bias which leads to people looking at sloppy research is confirmation bias. So this is the idea that we have our existing opinion and if there's research which supports that opinion, we will latch onto it and, and believe it, even without scrutinizing it. And if there's research which contradicts our opinion, we'll be immediately thinking that maybe the research was biased, maybe it was funded by some partisan body. And let's just give a, a really covered example. So, so just this week, um, there was a new study which came out by Arabesque Asset Management, which is an asset management firm I really respect. I, I know them well. I, do, I think they do lots of great stuff in terms of providing data for ESG. But what they did is they released a study which claimed that the greater the gender board diversity, the greater the climate performance. And that's something we'd love to believe because we love to believe that diversity improves performance. I'm an ethnic minority. I personally would like diversity to be beneficial. But what was surprising is that this was covered by newspapers and media outlets like Reuters. Loads of people were tweeting it and posting it on LinkedIn. And the study did not even exist. There was no such study. So what this was on was the claims of Arabesque claiming what the results were, but there was nothing to actually scrutinize it. And actually I, I commented on the LinkedIn post, not to be nasty, but just inquisitive. I said, I, I, this is a, sounds really exciting. Can you show me the study? I haven't been able to find it online. And they had to admit, well, we haven't actually read this study. So I think this is problematic because had the study found the opposite result, then you would want to read the study and tear it apart and find some flaws, but just because it's something that we believe to be true, we're just going to accept it uncritically. And there's so many problems that you could have. And one of the main problems is one of emitted variables. Those might be things that are correlated with both gender diversity and also climate. So let's say in Europe, they might be more progressive on gender diversity and also more forward thinking about climate, but it's basically a European versus US issue rather than a diversity issue per se. So you don't know which way causality goes. That whenever there's a study that you don't like, there was no shortage of alternative explanations. So people's cognitive facilities are certainly able to come up with alternative explanations when they want to explain something away, but those same critical thinking facilities are suddenly switched off when you would like to give something a free pass. Understood. So confirmation bias is something well-known in behavioral finance. And you get, did a wonderful public lecture series at Gresham College. Um, your lectures focused on a number of behavioral finance, um, issues. And I particularly enjoyed the one about how companies take advantage of our critical thinking mistakes. Given that our audience has a large number of financial professionals, what should we know about behaviors like the halo effect, window dressing and catering? Absolutely. So let me just go through one example. Let me go through the idea of, of catering. So this is the fact that there might be some investor demand or investor appetite for particular types of financial products. So back then at the time that the studies were done, which I covered in the question lecture series, there was a huge interest in say dot-com stocks. And so if you just added dot-com to the name of your company, 
critically without fundamentally changing the actual business. Your stock price rose, I think it was by something like 74%. So a huge amount. And then similarly, when the dot-com bubble ended, if you removed dot-com from your name, your stock price went up even further. So there was nothing to do with actual changing in the performance of the company. It was purely catering, playing to the crowd, playing to what the market appetite was. And why is that study, which was done based on the tech bubble 20 years ago, why is that still relevant today? Well, what is the big craze today? It is ESG. And I'm somebody who's a big supporter of ESG, but I still want to be a bit skeptical about it because there might be many funds which add ESG or something like sustainability to the name, but without a, a fundamental change in their stock selection or their engagement, it might be that this is just a way of catering to market appetite and attracting in fund flows. Now, because investors might not be sophisticated, they don't actually have the time to evaluate a company's voting record and engagement record, they might make their snap decisions based on the name. And if you just see sustainability in the name of a fund, you might invest in it even without actually scrutinizing their performance. That's an example of what I would call an exploitative behavior by either a company or a fund manager, exploiting our, as investors, cognitive biases. In another lecture, you talk about the mistake investors make. Can you go into that a bit? Yes. So this is interesting because when you think about behavioral biases, there, there's two strands of this literature. One, as you say, managers exploiting other people's mistakes. Here, this is investor um, sort of uh, investor inattention. And the second, investors suffering from their own mistakes. And one main mistake that you might make is overconfidence, which is that investors always think that they have an edge on the market. And this is something which is widely documented. If you ask a cross-section of people, how many of you think you are above me in your driving ability? 92% of people will say they are above when obviously only 50% can be. And if you think about anything else you might ask them, are you above median in terms of your sense of humor, your ability to get along with others? Again, 90% of people will think they're above median. And so if that's the case, then 90% of people will think they're above average in terms of investors. But again, only half the people can beat them up. And let me make this again contemporary today's current economic environment. People might look at things and say, oh, I see um, the Russian um, invasion of Ukraine to be a huge um, driver of instability. Perhaps there's US-China tension as well. Let me change my, my allocation between stocks and bonds between different geographies. However, market participants already know that there is a war, they know that there's US-China tensions, and they may have already taken this into account in the price. So if you believe that you should make an act of trade, it must be that you know something that I, as a market participant, don't, even though maybe your day job is being a doctor rather than a trader, and you don't have the same information as other people. Now, I am absolutely not a strong believer in perfect market efficiency. I believe that markets make mistakes, but, the starting point will be, you have to first ask, well, what is the mistake the market may have made? Sometimes the market makes mistakes because it ignores information, but is the market ignoring the fact that there is a Russia-Ukraine um, war? I think every participant knows that. So it's not actually clear what the edge that you have over the rest of the invest other investors are, and therefore it's not necessarily justified for you to make huge changes to your portfolio. Let me tease that out a little because. I've never, as you say, I've never quite thought of you as a big believer in efficient market hypothesis. And I have, um, last year written a book with professor Jim Holy that also criticizes efficient market hypothesis. So 
what I think I hear you saying is it's, you're a believer in a sort of a weak form and you should at least understand what it is that you're challenging as opposed to saying that it's discount, everything's discounted in the market already. So how should investors, um, think about EMH specifically, sorry, efficient market hypothesis specifically when they are making their investment decisions? Absolutely. For example, I'm sure we're going to get on into ESG investing. Why might ESG investing add value? Well, you might argue that ESG, because it's non-financial information, and to some investors, it's a niche field, they might not take this information into account. Therefore, it might well be misplaced by the market. But something which is extremely salient that everybody seems to know is an issue, such as a war, that might be something that you think is indeed priced in right now. So it could be. You might think, well, maybe people underreact to the war. People know that there's a war, but perhaps they're not reacting enough. But if so, let's try to look at history, look at prior crises and see, well, was there underreaction in those cases? And if there was systemic underreaction to past wars, then you might think, well, right now, that the market has underreacted. But again, we want to first start from the premise of it's, it's our, the onus is on us to come up with a reason for why the market might be inefficient before we choose to deviate from just holding the market portfolio. And there are good arguments for why the market might be inefficient, but we first need to come up with those arguments rather than uh, immediately just assume there's inefficiencies in every, in every case. So let's get into ESG, but I want to get into it in this particular way. Um, last year you published an important book, as I said, in the intro, I am a fan of the name of the book is grow the pie, how great companies deliver both purpose and profit. Um, I thought it was a welcome antidote to any number of finance and business books that seem to think that investing in the economy are zero-sum games, where the job is to get a bigger slice of a fixed size pie. By contrast, you contend, and your research shows, that financial profit is most sustainable when it's a subset of societal profit. What prompted you to write the book in the first place? Thanks very much, John. So, so, so what is the pie? The pie is the value that a company creates, which can be divided between profits to investors and value to society. Let's say fair wages to workers, fair taxes to government, or fair prices to customers. So what prompted me to write the book is that many people have this fixed pie mindset that we just need to split the pie differently. So there's some people who are strong supporters of just profits, and they think, well, the only way to make more profits is to exploit other people, so let's charge com customers as much as we can, let's pay workers as little as possible, so they have a fixed time mindset. But on the other extreme, you have people who are business reformers who thought that in order to make business more um, sustainable and to care more about society, we need to trample on profits and heavily regulate business and so on. So you have this massive polarization between the supporters of business who think profits are the only thing they want. And supporters of society think profits are just evil, they're, they're value extraction. So what I wanted to highlight was, well, there is, and um, the possibility of growing the pie and working together collaboratively is that companies that create value to society might also become successful and profitable in the long term. And this has profound implications for both sides. First, let's say you're the manager profit side. Actually, even if your only goal was to make profit, as long as your goal is long-term profit, the best way to do that is not necessarily by squeezing workers, but by investing your workers, investing in culture, giving them meaningful working skills development, 
they'll become more motivated and more productive. And on the flip side, if you're somebody who cares about society, do we necessarily want to criticize a company and shame them for making large profits? Not necessarily, because the only way that you can make profits, at least in the long term, is by providing products that really address society's needs, by investing your workers, by having a good environmental record and the like. Now, you might think that this idea of win-wins where both business and society um, mutually benefit sounds a bit wishful thinking. It sounds a bit like good, too good to be true. So that's why the heartbeat of the book is evidence. And the evidence, I try to ensure that the evidence that I put into the book, not just mine, but evidence by other people, is rigorous and avoids the confirmation bias that you asked me about in my first question, your first question. Because one might think everybody would like to believe that doing good always does well. So any flimsy study claiming that ethicality pays off, people might want to touch on. But my book was not just written for the convert. It was written for maybe the hard-headed businessman or businesswoman who might be skeptical about purpose, but at least open to reading about it. But I know that I would only be able to convince them with rigorous evidence rather than just handpicked stuff. What about the other direction? Um, the business reformers who would say that the other way to have sustainable profits is to externalize costs and act in monopolistic fashion and might um, cite something like Meta and the argued or the parent company of Facebook with the argument that by increasing, um, in effect, confirmation bias among individual groups, you create social disharmony, but increase your profitability. And that that is a sustainable business model, but not necessarily sustainable societal model. Yeah, I, I think that's just a, it's a very valid concern is that the, the big problem to anything like um, the pie gray mindset is externality. So what is an externality? That is when you have an effect in society, which does not bounce back and affect you even in the very long term. So fundamental to the pie growing idea is that many things that you do to affect society will ultimately bounce back and affect you. So if I mistreat my workers over a long period or fail to invest in them, then they'll be less productive. But I have to admit that not anything is um, a win-win. There are some true externalities which are never internalized. And so you might think carbon emissions is, is, is another example in addition to one engaged on. So this is why the role of governments is, is really important. So indeed, I would like to explain to businesses why you should not just wait for government action. It's in your interest to take seriously some of these societal issues because they do ultimately sharpen multiple ways. But the government also needs to play an active role because for those externalities that don't sharpen long-term profits, there will be no intrinsic incentive for a company to take this into account. So the government needs to externalize this. This might be something like um, a, a carbon tax. If it's a monopoly power issue to take um, actions to, to break up monopolies or to hinder them from forming to begin with, to be to antitrust law when there's no emissions and the like. And I think this is also some part of the balance of the book because there are many people who argue who needs to step in and address the societal issues. Some say it's all government. If you believe, say, Tariq Fancy, he will argue the entire sustainable investment industry is a ruse. It has to be just government. But then there's people who are on the other extreme who say, no, it must be just um, companies and investors and do it by themselves. And unfortunately, those extreme positions get the writers a lot of fame by having one very extreme position. Well, I think the reality is we need a combination of the different players in the system to work together in order to bring about the world that we would like to see. We agree. If you ever want to uh, 
jointly write an article called um, A False Dichotomy. I'd be glad to uh, participate in that one. Let me switch gears for a second and, and ask you about another area that you are expert in, which is share buybacks. Um, when a company buys back into its treasury, already issued shares for the public. Now, this has been controversial for some time now, and it seems to be a focus of legislators and regulators everywhere. It, indeed, um, as we record this in early 2022, uh, buybacks in the U.S. are on pace to grow 20% year over year, according to Goldman Sachs. And the Biden administration has proposed new regulations just this week to discourage buybacks. Now, proponents of buybacks say flexible way for a company to adjust its capital structure and to arbitrage undervalued shares. Opponents say it enables executives to game the system and boost executive compensation while scrimping on investment in workers, physical equipment, and technology. You've actually done research in the area. Edward, advisor to the UK government inquiry on the subject. So what does your research say and what's your opinion? So how did this come about? Well, the UK government, the Conservative Party, in their election manifesto, they promised if they were elected to do a study into the alleged misuse of share buybacks. Because this was something which just the general public, who might not have cared about share buybacks three or five years ago, thought, well, no, this is something that we've seen in the media. We think that this is just a sign of how corrupt capitalism is in that CEUs can enrich themselves at the expense of the old workers. So they said, well, did a commission study. When they won the election, they uh, did a tender and um, PwC and LA jointly bid for this. PwC obviously with the practitioner expertise, me with the academic expertise, and we were appointed by the UK government. And what we appointed to do, to look at the two charges that you just referred to, John. The first charge is that do share buybacks are sufficiently boost executive pay. And what we had through the PwC data was data on every single compensation contract in the FTSE 350. We knew the earnings per share thresholds and the bonuses. We could calculate the earnings post buyback and what the earnings would have been without the buyback. And over the 10 year period that we studied, we did not find a single case in which CEOs hit their EPS target through a buyback. If we weren't biased researchers, we'd have every incentive to uncover a scam, right? Because we would have been seen as famous for uncovering this malfeasance where people were used firebacks to hit the target, but we found nothing. And so that's where the report said that there was nothing in terms of that effect. Now, the second thing that we can look at is, well, are buybacks also linked to reductions in investment? And we also found no link there at all. If anything, the buy be some link between some particular executive pay structures and investment, but no link between buybacks and investment. And then why is that? Well, what people have, and then this is not just found in our study, but also in, in other studies, what they have is a, a price structure of how companies make decisions. They first choose which investment opportunities to pursue. And then if and only if there is cash left over, they might then use that cash for a buyback. But it's the investment that comes first and the buybacks that come second. Notice this is quite different from dividends. 
dividends. So many companies, they first think, let's maintain the dividend, because if we don't, our stock price is going to go through the floor, and let's invest down of the money left over. So one could quite argue that dividends can be at the expense of, of investments with buybacks, because they're always coming below in the priority structure. This is not something that seems to be hindering investment. And indeed, while buybacks have grown, there is work by Jesse Fried and Charlie Wang of Harvard Business School and Harvard Law School finding that cash balances are on a high. So it's not necessarily the case that buybacks have been short-changing investments. Indeed, one final piece of evidence, and I'll, I'll end this answer, is what happens to the stock price when a buyback takes place. The stock price goes up in the short term, but it goes up even more in the long term. Whereas if you believe sort of the media can consider, and it's at least a short term, which later on reverse, but that's not borne out by the data, actually the long-term effect is also positive of a buyback suggesting it is not just something which is artificial myopic inflation. Let me ask you to comment on my belief about buybacks, which is occasional buybacks are fine, but when I see a company that does buybacks year after year, my question is sort of more of a strategic one, which is why can't the board find higher returning investment opportunities in their strategic plan? Is it a lack of vision? Um, because as you say, the buybacks only occur after they decide they don't have something else to invest in. And why have they not figured out what else to invest in that has a higher potential return? Or am I forcing them to make a decision that may not exist? Yeah, I think this is a good question, John. And I think they could be doing the buybacks for good reasons, also bad reasons. So let's first explore the reason that you put, put forward, which I think is a, is a very valid reason in many cases, is that maybe the board is, is just um, not uh, visually enough. It's, it's not seeing the potential to some investments. Maybe they're in evaluating investments with just a short-term financial mindset. They're not looking at, say, investors in workers, investors in sort of customers and so forth. A lot of the pie-growing ideas in that I talk about in my book, because the return is actually quite distant in the future, it might be that my board just doesn't see that. So those cases, buybacks are bad, but actually the solution to that is not so much to ban buybacks, because it could be that they just help, it's just held on the cash or they could have just used it to pay down debt, but the changes in the short-term mindsets that the wars might be having. What's exciting you right now? What are you passionate about? What I'm really passionate about is the mainstreaming of responsible business. So when I started this field 15 years ago, it was really unpopular. It was known as CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility. And that always had a niche of being disconnected from the rest of the business. You've got the business, you've got the CEO, the CFO, and you have the CSR department, which just perhaps does a few things like charitable donations to, to make sure that image didn't get worse than too much. Now, people are talking much more about business purpose and making it mainstream, and this is often a CEO-level issue. And one of the things that I've tried to do recently is to mainstream it myself. So many of your listeners might have heard of the book Principles of Corporate Finance by Breeley and Myers. This was known as the Bible of Finance for, for 40 years. I studied it as an undergrad. When I joined Morgan Stanley, we were all given it. Uh, and I've been grateful to, to be now advised to be co-author of this book. So the new edition is coming out in April, um, which I'm a co-author of, and we've put in an ESG and purpose from the first chapter of the book. So yes, the goal is to maximize long-term shared value. 
but you can only maximize long-term shareholder value if you take seriously your impact on customers and employees and the environment and so forth. And so that mainstreaming is something which is really exciting me. Hopefully, in 10 years' time, we won't even think about ESG or responsibility as a field because it will be just taken for granted that any business that wants to maximize profit needs to take into account its impact on stakeholders. Congratulations on the book. Um, let's finish with a couple of quick questions and answers. How do you relax? I love to do a violent and demanding athletics. So you might think that that's not relaxing, but I really enjoy it because during my day, I have um, just a lot of like mental and, and intellectual challenges. I like to go to like a, a very difficult sort of fitness class. And um, the place I go to the UK is Barry's Boot Camp. There's um, studios all across the US where you get beasted um, for an hour, but there's really loud music and it's really energetic. I'm going to go there uh, later. We talked earlier about your musical background. What sort of music do you listen to now? So what I typically like is, is classic rock. So stuff like Bruce Springsteen and U2 and so on. So why do I like it? I find it's, it's energetic, it's, it's melodic, um, but also it's something where the lyrics sometimes will mean something. So with, with Springsteen, I know that a lot of his work, his work was at Drama Canugiet, Jersey and so forth. I think it is nice to have something which sounds good, but has a little bit of a meaning behind it. So you have sometimes an emotional connection with some aspects of, of the song. But it might just depend on the time. So there are times when I'm in Barry, so what they'll play is just energetic electronic dance music with no lyrics at all, but it's something that keeps you uh, keeps you motivated and keeps you going. So what's the, what's really nice about music is that you can always choose something that is going to be um, sort of relevant for your mood. But for my most neutral mood, I, I'd love something like classical. Do you listen to music while you work? I don't. I know that there's some people who do that, but I, I, when I work, I need to be completely focused. I, I cannot listen to anything at all. Even white noise is distracting. So um, what I just like to do is to have nothing else going on in the background so that I can completely be immersed in what I'm doing. What are you reading right now? Um, I'm not actually reading work that much in terms of um, my own stuff right now. Why? Because I had a... Um, maybe about four months ago. And so most of my reading is reading him. So actually a book that I read to this morning is called Bayesian Probability for Baby. So it's a good series by um, a teacher called Chris Barry. He's a science teacher in Australia, where there's uh, like one called Bayesian Probability for, for Babies, um, Quantum Physics for Babies, General Relativity for Babies. And, and so quite like the stuff is it breaks down these really complicated concepts in, in central language that you, you could read out. So this explains uh, Bayesian probability by if you take a bite of a cookie and the cookie doesn't have candy on it, what was the probability that it came from a no candy cookie? So explaining things in language that, that babies might be able to uh, understand. Obviously, he's not at the level where he can read a lot, but just to be able to, to, to read things like him and, and, and show the pictures, that's something which is a lot of fun. You can't get away from it, can you? You couldn't just say good night mood. It's got to be Bayesian statistics for babies. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. It still has to have some kind of a mathematical element to it. Okay. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? I just encourage them to think a little bit more critically. Um, so we often will just accept things at face value. And I think this has just led to the world becoming more polarized because we listen to what we like and we resist what we don't. But there's quite a lot that you can learn by hearing the other viewpoint. And I don't always get it right myself, but one of the very few times I think I might have done 
it is in the Brexit Remain debate. I'm a strong believer in Remain. I love to think that all the Brexiters were xenophobic and uninformed and so on. But I thought, no, let me try to go to talks by leading economists who are also Brexiters and hear their arguments. So it might be that I end up disagreeing with 90% of what they say, but maybe 10% of what they say is right. Not only do I learn from that, but then when I have a debate about Brexit versus Remain, and if I wanted to stand up for the Remain side, I've at least stood in the other person's shoes and I understood what the concerns are, and that leads to more informal con- conversation. And that maybe we're coming full circle to the start of the podcast, John. That's what, I, what led me to wanting to go into something like social science to begin with, rather than the hard sciences where they might only be quite hard. Thank you. Our guest today on Outside In has been Alex Edmonds professor of finance at the London Business School. Um, I always find that a conversation with Alex is a great corrective to me. It gets me back on course in terms of trying to think rationally, and I hope it has to uh, you, all our listeners. Thanks so much, Alex. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening. Outside in is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com.